This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Well, as a church family, we come together weekly, sometimes more than once a week. We are equipping you and seeking to be a family equipped to glorify God by making disciples within Christ-centered redemptive communities. That is our goal. And as we've gathered here this morning, many of you have already been in life groups, Sunday school class already today. Others of you are tuning in for the first time, perhaps, or joining us as you just arrived. We have uh, this moment to, to read the Scripture together as we, we look at this next passage as we are walking our way through this narrative, which is in God's holy word in the book of Acts. So I invite you, if you would, to stand with me as I read out of Acts chapter 17. We take up this account where Paul and Silas have, been, uh, have left Thessalonica on the second missionary journey, and they make their way to a city known as Berea. In verse 10, it says this, the brothers immediately, the brothers being those in Thessalonica that were friends with there, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to, join, to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I pray that God will bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I come from a generation that grew up watching a lot more television than I should have. I don't know if that's anyone else can relate to that. But uh, I, I watched television all the time whenever I got my homework done and I had opportunity to and I wasn't outside playing. And usually, you know, the rules of growing up, it's a different era, I get it. But when the streetlights came on, I had to be home. By the time the streetlights came on, well, then prime time, right? And yet I lived in the era where television shows and movies of the week were a little different than they are as they are shown today. It was one of those eras where if I wanted to see what showed up on Tuesdays at 8 o'clock on NBC, I had to be in the room on Tuesdays at 8 o'clock to turn on the television. Because if I missed it, it wasn't showing at my leisure, and there was no VCR, at least not initially, where I could record it and watch it later. And, and if I did miss that episode, then I would have to wait till the entire year almost had passed, maybe till next spring, next summer, if they chose to show reruns. It was a different era, different day uh, watching these shows. But there was something else about most of the shows back then, most of the television shows back in what we now define as ancient history for many of you. Long before streaming, long before they dropped an entire series online where you could, you could binge watch every episode within three or four days, you had to time it and you had to watch it and you had to make your schedule fit. But the, the thing was, it was a bit differently, but done differently because most series were not um, filmed like they were uh, feature films or movies like they are today. I mean, it, it is incredible when you look at the difference in how they're made and what they look like. Of course, there was no high definition. I didn't see anything in high definition. I had bad eyesight to begin with. So... Um, definitely not on the television. And so, uh, and TV, didn't, the channels, this is, this is going to blow some of you away. The TV channels weren't even on 24 hours. They, they went off 
They'd play the national anthem, and then a green dot would appear, and it was done. You'd have to wait till another day. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. What? Yeah. Um, we didn't really watch our phones either because those were connected to the wall, and they were just... <laughs> we didn't even own them. We rented them from Bell South or somewhere, right? It was a different era. Um, but there was something else about these series and about these shows is you can miss an episode, and it really wouldn't matter that much because most of the time the episodes were not these long, drawn-out stories written by people who were making sure that this secret thing, this Easter egg, this connection mattered. I mean, honestly, uh, if you come in late, here's what's going to happen. Starsky and Hutch, they will catch the bad guy and drive off in the red Torino. It's going to happen. If you miss an episode, it didn't matter if last week Charlie's Angels were in a women's prison. Next week, Pharaoh's riding a skateboard down the street. It's going to happen. They're going to survive. It's going to be another episode, another series. Some of you right now are going, I saw that episode. So I know, I know what you're talking about. But it's different nowadays. And, and there's something about those, those episodic television. I, I mean, guess rarely were they connected. Maybe The Fugitive was. I guess they always had to figure out who the one-armed man was. That one was connected one series to the next. But, but it's a little different. It's a lot different nowadays. For those too young to connect with those examples, you know, just, just, just look on Hulu or Peacock or Netflix and see if any of these classics are airing and you will understand how they're all one episode at a time. And if you dare watch them, and I know, that, I know this, is, this is just like a generational thing, but if you watch those shows that your parents said, man, this was my favorite show growing up, you'll watch an episode and you'll look at them and go, that was terrible. That's what you'll say, right? It was poor production. Maybe the acting wasn't that great. It had incredible theme songs that usually lasted about eight minutes. But nonetheless, the show, you're going, that wasn't that great. We get it. Nostalgia is a wonderful thing. Sometimes we remember things better than they were, you know, so, it's, so don't mess with us, right? So go back to watching Loki and Stranger Things or Grey's Anatomy, whatever you're binging now. But here's my point. There is a point. Eventually you get to this. I kind of grew up in church thinking that Bible stories were all episodic moments. It wasn't intentional. It's just how I viewed it. It's another episode in the grand story of God's Word, whether that's how it was presented in Sunday school or even in my English translated Bible, which is much like yours, I'm sure. If you have a, a modern translation, if you look at how it's lined up and lined out, King James may not do this, but some of the more modern English translations do, and even in your digital version it will, it'll have a, a segment like today is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 10, ends in verse 15, and mine is segmented out. That's like, how it even has a subtitle over it, like an episode title. Season 5, episode 3, here's the title, Paul and Silas in Berea. Now, those titles are not inerrant. Those are added in, but they are helpful to try to discover, well, what's going on in this section of Scripture? But one of the challenges is, I guess one of the, the things that I think we've got to be careful not to do is to look at Bible stories as if they're episodic and self-contained. In fact, they're even deeper than that. It's not even part of a longer series. It's in part of a full epic story that is in the beginning God, Genesis 1-1, to in the beginning John 1-1, to every story that is interrelated, they're all interconnected. It is one large story. When I read the, through the book of Acts, I have to be careful not to say, okay, this is the Paul and Silas story. Because here's something we've got to be, be, be aware of. In this story, that this section of God's grand story that I just read, it would be easy to think that Paul and Silas are the main characters. Or it would be easy to, to think that maybe Paul is the main character. You know, the book of Acts starring Paul. 
Or that even in this section that maybe those Jews that are in Berea are, part, are, are main characters, or even those that become Christians are main characters. And sometimes we do this, or at least I do this, is, is I can miss the reality of what's going on here. But here's some truth just to kind of file away to make sure you don't get trapped in, in seeing Scripture as if it's a series. The main character of this story is the same main character of everything in the Holy Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The main character is and always will be God. He's the main character. What's so unique is not only is he the main character, he is the author. He's the executive producer. He's it. It's all about God. This revealed, inerrant, immutable word that God has given us, written for his glory, compiled by his design, is for our good. But it's about him. And it's a great invitation about, of his story by him, for him, where we are allowed to join in with him as the story, not the, the word of God, not the canon, the, the, the canon is, is finalized, but we live it out even today. And that is why we read the word. That is why we come to the services and we start our service with singing to our Lord and then the reading of Scripture. And we, we pause for the reading of Scripture. We, we say, here's a special moment. We're going to open up this holy book and we're going to read these words that are not just some man's interpretation. And I know some of you struggle with that whole inerrancy thing. But I will tell you, the inerrancy part of Scripture is what unites us and holds us firmly in our doctrines. We do believe that it is an errant word, inerrant meaning without error, meaning not just some random dude writing it down, but the Holy Spirit of God inspiring those who put pen to paper thousands of years ago, canonized for the glory of God and for our good so that we have truth before us. We read the word as, it's be, as it is a living word, but it's deeper than that. This is not just some random book. This is not just some book you pick up on Sunday mornings because you're heading to church. It's not just a verse a day keeps the devil away. There is so much in here that I, I can't just, I can't emphasize it enough that it's better than the script for a story. It is the story. And it is God's word given to us. This is why we don't have to make church relevant. That's kind of a movement among American Christianity. We don't have to make stories in the scripture relevant for today. Why? Because by its nature, by God's nature, he is relevant. And his word is relevant. You might say, well, I just don't like the history of it. It's because you're not reading it. It's because you don't understand it, because you're not letting the Spirit speak to you through it. It's not a history book, though it holds history. It is a living word. And that is why you and I need these stories, but more than stories. We flip the page and we go to the next section. And because we value every word, you know, I'm not opposed to preaching topical sermons, and at times we will as God leads. But by and large, what we're doing is walking through. That's how we found ourselves in Acts chapter six or 17 in this sermon on August 8th. And for those who are keeping score, this is the 59th sermon in this series. I used to do series of four and five because I am, you know, I have a short attention span. So we're at series, uh, this, this, right now, sermon number 59. And I have no idea how many sermons this will be, but I've, I've, I've glanced ahead, and there are uh, a few more chapters. 
So thanks for hanging out with me. And by the way, if you want to experience all 59, again, those are made available for you. But we look at this word and we understand that based on our statement of faith and the Baptist faith and message about what we believe collectively, and when you join First Baptist Church, I don't know if you knew this, but you actually sign off that you believe that by virtue of being a member. You believe what we teach and hold to be true. That God's holy word has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. So we read today of Paul and the team. Paul, Silas, likely Luke and Timothy, the team of four plus any others that were gathered around with them, making their journey and their way across the known world from Thessalonica at this point to a city named Berea. Now, Berea is, a, is an interesting city. It's the next city on the mission trip. It's the next city on the tour, if you want to look at it that way. And most people in Clay County only know the existence of a Berean church based on a former church that is now shut down that used to be in our county. But can I just say as nicely as I can, don't uh, define a true Berean by what you know from our own local history. For the Berean church that God planted here was an important church in that era. Paul and Silas and the team escape Thessalonica. They move on to Berea. The message that they bring um, was heard in Thessalonica even though the people, the Jewish people in the synagogues there were irate when he preached the gospel. Let me, let me, look at, let me tell you this way. You ever watch those uh, courtroom dramas? I'm doing way too many TV references, but courtroom dramas, all right? We're going full Perry Mason today. So just imagine, or law and order, I don't know. Now I'm, I'm, I'm in the weeds. Let me get back out. And, and, and you've got somebody on the stand that is giving some form of testimony. And then the one of the lawyers stands up and says, I object, and it's a proper objection, and the judge is sitting there and looks to the jury and says this, to effect, ignore everything that person just said, strike it from the record. I've often thought about that, thinking, how does that work? I mean, really, how does that work? This person just said something on the stand, and because we know the, the, the courtroom drama television show, How It Works, they're telling the truth, right? But the judge says, just ignore everything. Well, you know that's impossible. You've already heard it. I mean, you're not supposed to use it in your judgment. I get it. I'm, and don't, and, by the way, all the lawyers, I'm sorry. I don't even know what to do with that. I'm just telling you, I think they remember it. So here's what happened. Paul is in Thessalonica, and the Jewish leaders of the synagogue are basically telling everybody in the, in the synagogue, ignore everything this guy said. But thanks be to God, because it was said, it was heard. And because it was heard, you can't unhear it. And even though those guys didn't like him, they ran him out, of, and he, he comes to Berea. And there they are in Berea. It's a brief account. And, and I think this, 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 this short section of Scripture, I think it's golden. Look here. You have these people in Berea, the Bereans, who, who receive the word. They receive the word of God. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness. So just like in Thessalonica and every other city that had a synagogue, Paul and Silas go first to the synagogue. Some have asked, well, why are only Paul and Silas going to the synagogue? Because Paul and Silas are the only two fully orthodox 
born and raised Jews on the mission team. So Luke's not going in, and Timothy is half Jew, half Greek. So apparently Paul and Silas are the ones, and that's where they go, and they go right into the synagogue. And they did this in just about every city they went to, especially those that had synagogues. Now, the fact that they went in there is important, but what they were doing is, is they were going into a synagogue, which was not a foreign encounter for them, for they grew up Jews, they grew up in that heritage, they had been to synagogue on just about every Sabbath of their entire lifetime, they knew the structure of the worship and the reading and the scripture and the debate and everything that would take place in synagogue, just as if you grew up in a Baptist church and you could plant yourself anywhere across the nation over the last 50 years, walk into a church that said it's a Southern Baptist church, and by and large, for the most part, you likely would find, feel, feel very comfortable at hopefully going in there kind of knowing the routine. Paul and Silas go into the, the synagogue, and what's happening in the synagogue is that which happens every Sabbath, and they're teaching, and they're reading the law, and they're debating Torah. That's what happens. But here's what Paul and Silas bring to the table. They are no longer who they used to be And while they grew up Jews and they knew Torah and they knew the debating and they knew the law and they had Deuteronomy memorized, they knew something else. They knew that the story was being fulfilled before them in their own lifetime and the Messiah that had been prophesied for thousands of years had actually come and Jesus was the fulfillment of all that their brethren had been longing for for their entire lives. So they go into there and recognize that We have the rest of the story. And they enter into those conversations. But not every synagogue welcomed them after they began speaking and teaching the gospel. In fact, in some cases, like Thessalonica, they would run them out. And in some cases, they would throw rocks at them. And in some cases, they'd get them in prison, do anything they can to get rid of these guys. But it seemed like every time there was the opportunity, it never occurred to them to change their plans. Now, logic would tell us that if every city you go to and you do the same thing every time and you go into the synagogues first to proclaim the gospel to the Jews in every city, and most of the time they are not receptive to what you're bringing, and at times they are actually uh, quite offended and, and a bit angry at what you're offering, Logic would say, well, maybe it's time to quit going to the synagogues. Maybe it's time to just quit doing this, and let's just go to the Greeks and the pagans and the Romans and all of those that are at least perhaps open to speaking about another God, all those that have a pantheistic understanding anyway. That's not how Paul and Silas dealt with this. That's not how Paul dealt with this. And it leads to the question of why would he keep going back? My answer is what I believe is revealed in Scripture here and in other passages. Is one, we know Paul had a mission and there were instructions given, but Paul also had a burden for lost people and a real serious burden for lost people who were like him. Lost people who grew up like he did. Lost people who had the same worldview he grew up into. Lost people who were family, who were members of the tribes of Israel, who were faithful in their traditions just as he was. I don't know what that means for you, but perhaps in your own life you have loved ones, family members, people with shared last names or shared DNA, those that that you care about, those that you are so concerned about, those that in your heart of hearts you're pretty confident they don't know Jesus. And if you could see anybody on the planet saved, you'd pick them because of your deep love for them, because of your burden for them. 
You're almost at the point, if you could even sacrifice your own relationship with Christ, you might consider it if just they could get saved. But you know you can't pray someone else into heaven. You can't surrender for someone else. Paul was broken for his Jewish brethren. He wrote to the church in Rome, he said this in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, my family members, the people of my nation, is that they may be saved. He was burdened, he was broken, and he was positioned in such a unique place that he knew God did not eliminate his opportunity to go to a synagogue that he was at least welcomed into at that juncture. He knew he could go in. He couldn't justify not. He was grieved over the lostness of loved ones. But you don't give up hope. So Paul was pushing. He was pushing against the lies of history, and and he continued to. Why? Because in the midst of the lost crowd, in the midst of the lostness that was in the synagogue, in the midst of, of that crowd where he knew the customs and he knew the words and he understood the inside jokes that were spoken in Hebrew that those in the city didn't get, He knew that there's always a remnant. It may not be all of them, but there'll be some. That when you speak the truth, even if someone says, disregard everything you've just heard, once they've heard it, they've heard it. That's that seed scattering concept that Christ spoke of, right? We scatter the seeds of the gospel. Some of it falls on rocky soil. Some of it falls on fertile soil. Some of it sprouts up quickly and dies, but some of it has deep roots. Not all of it, but some of it. So Paul offers that seed of the truth, and he offered it there. He was, one of the rem- he was a member of the remnant, of the chosen few, of the redeemed, and he couldn't keep it to himself. These Jews in Berea, they say, are noble. What does that mean? That's kind of an interesting word. They're noble. And it's, almost, it's, it's, it's a comparative word as, as different than, than the Jews that were in Thessalonica. And it's not so much a shot at those, the, the, the personalities of the Thessalonians. It's a declaration of, of standing. It, it's the same kind of word that is used to describe Joseph of Arimathea, if you know that story, a nobleman. It comes from a, a word that I will mispronounce, but it looks like eugenies translated as well-born or high-born. doesn't mean better, it just means they, they entered into this world in better standing. They lived in better houses. They had, I was going to say better cars, so they had, they had nicer donkeys. Um, I don't know. Uh, they, 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 they had wealth. They had standing. They had education. They had They had things going for them that their brethren in Thessalonica did not. They were in the upper middle class while the Thessalonican Jews were in the lower middle class. It was a a demographic separation. And when they describe the Bereans, you're going, oh, well, no wonder these guys became followers of Christ because they were noble. They were more educated. Can I just say that the higher educated does not make it easier for someone to to receive the gospel? In fact, in many cases, it it makes it even more challenging. But here's the truth. God's never afraid of the hard questions for he is the complete answer. But these men, these Jews, they did something a bit differently than the ones in the other city. It says they received the word. 
That means they were open to the conversation. They were open to the conversation about the gospel. Now, Paul had no idea to know if the Jews in that synagogue were ready to hear what he had to say until he first started speaking. But when he started speaking, they said, would you tell us a bit more? We're intrigued. I mean, the question is, for us, are are we open to receiving the word? I mean, I get we're open to the verse a day keeps the devil away, but are we open to receiving the fullness of God's word, even the passages of scripture that are offensive to us because they are opposite of our predisposed way of seeing the world? I mean, we're good when the scripture calls out the sin in other people. We don't necessarily like it when it calls out ours. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But the word of God is offensive to that regard, but I have to be open to receiving it, the fullness of it. From Genesis to the story of Adam, Noah, Moses, even, that, even those chapters you skip when you're trying to read through, you know, like in Numbers, that has list of names and numbers. But they matter, and God uses those. So these Bereans, they receive the word, but secondly, they also research the word. Look at this. It says they receive the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Examining the scriptures. This is a challenging passage, not to be ignored, not to be run through quickly. They heard what Paul was teaching, and they had their copies of the Old Testament with them, the scrolls. And they didn't just hear Paul say something and go, well, you know, it sounds right. I think we'll follow him. They heard what he said, then they opened the scrolls, and they read the word, and they researched. Josh McDowell, youth communicator, evangelist for many years, he had a book titled, Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. It's a great title because, you know, ignorant Christianity is not something to hold high. Well thought, researched well. Just because somebody stands before you and is eloquent of speech has framed degrees on their wall and may be considered an expert in certain areas by others based on what they say, wisdom says, do your own research. Make sure it lines up with Scripture. If we're going to hold that the Word of God is immutable and inerrant and this is our guide, then anything I say outside or contradictory to this eliminates me from standing here forever. Just because you read something on the internet does not make it true. Did you know that? (laughs) Some of you need to write that on the internet right now and add a picture of a cat so people will look at it. Just because you read it on the internet or in an email doesn't make it true. Thanks be to God for all the conspiracy theorists who believe that the world is going to be transformed through shared emails. No, not thanks be to God. Please save us from them. The internet is not necessarily the place you go to check truth. Hey, just because you see a picture of something doesn't mean it's true. Do you remember, since I'm so up on the royal family, it's it's the prince that didn't marry Meghan Markle, and I even forgot his name from the first service. William? He did not marry Markle. That's the other one. That's Harry. I do know Harry. William, thank you. Let me write that down. (laughs) The bald one. Okay, so, I don't know. 
So there was an image of him that went out all over the internet about a year and a half ago. I don't know if you saw it, don't care if you saw it, but I just saw it like this week, and I'm like, oh yeah, good point. And it's a picture of him standing by the limo, getting ready to get in, and he's holding his hand up, and I won't do the gesture, but it is a, he's given the California howdy, apparently. If you've never seen Beverly Hillbillies, you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, so he's, um, he's pointing a certain finger at someone, and everybody, oh my goodness, the prince, the royalty, oh, he's... He's uh, flipping the royal bird to somebody. That's what they were saying. Is this can be edited out? Can I edit this out of the, stre- the streaming? But that's the picture. <laughs> and people were all up in arms until you saw the other picture taken from the other angle. And he was saying, there's three of us getting in the car. He had three fingers up. But the image looked like something else, and so the other image is what went viral. And then, of course, stories are written to add to it. But with Photoshop, you can do just about anything with photographs nowadays. And we're now in the era where just because you saw it on a video doesn't make it true either. If you don't know the word deep fake, you need to figure that one out because there are videos of actors and actresses and other people that you may or may not know that are online doing things and it's not them. I'm telling you, before, I think within the next five years or 10 years, we're gonna have an actress or an actor win Best Actor Oscar. And we will not know until after the fact that that human being does not even really exist, but is a composite of artificial intelligence. You're like, oh, I don't know if that's true. Listen, you don't even know if I'm really here. (laughs) I am really here, I think. All right, I'm about out of time. But these guys, just because you see the picture, just because you see the video, just, it doesn't necessarily make it true. And so what the Bereans heard was a great message from Paul that sounded very kind and very concerning, and it was. But what they did, they didn't just look at him and go, hey, we believe it immediately. They went back, and it says, they examined the Scriptures daily. And they discovered what Paul was saying lined up exactly, which gave veracity to what Paul was saying. And so they listened even more. These Berean Jews knew the Torah. They heard the message and they knew the prophecies. And they listened and they were intrigued. And rather than entering into some first century version of Twitter-like debate under the guise of quote-unquote protecting the faith or being some self-defined polemic that likes to be angry in the, for the sake of the gospel, there's enough of those out there on social media and in our churches, These men opened up the scriptures, that which they knew to be true, inspired by the one who is true, and compared verse to verse, note to note, word with word. The test is in the word of God, and the truth is in the word of God. And we don't elevate the written scripture to some imaginary fourth person of the Trinity, but you will notice that if you look in John 1.1, you will discover that logos, that word for word, is actually used to define and describe Christ himself. He is that living word of God, the Father. Well, they received it, and they researched it, and then they responded to the word. Look at verse 12. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. This is an encouraging thing to me. I hope it is to you. See, Paul and Silas's mission was to be obedient to the call of God and to share the gospel. They shared. They were not graded on responses. They were graded on their obedience to share. 
I don't know if you caught that, but as they shared, they didn't back down. They didn't water down the message. They didn't make it something different in this area versus something different in this area. There is a part of contextualization, the presentation of the gospel, but even in contextualization, you don't have permission to eliminate the gospel or water it down or to make it something it is not. So they preached it clearly, and they preached it plainly, and they shared the life-giving, eternity-securing, hope-offering truth of God's Word through His Holy Word, who is Christ Himself. And the Holy Spirit led those who responded to respond. And it says, many believed. Did you catch that it didn't say all believed? Now, I wish it said all believed. But there is this reality. Not all believe but many did. And the many who believed, believed because they heard the word. And I wonder how much longer they would have had to wait to believe had they not heard it that day. They heard it that day and they believed. See, this is how the world is turned upside down or right side up. This is how the kingdom expands. That's how the enemy is defeated. One city at a time, one community at a time, one message at a time, one person at a time who receives the word, researches the word, and responds to the word. And not everybody celebrates when those responses happen. Not everyone gets happy when the redeemed are redeemed. It seems that there are still going to be angry people in the world who self-define themselves as the protectors of God's religion and message. The Jews in Thessalonica were successful in kicking Paul and Silas out of their city, but when word came back, hey, they just went down to Berea, they're preaching the same thing, those that were in Thessalonica got so angry that they put together a first century donkey riding posse to get down there to Berea with the intent of finishing off Paul and Silas and shutting down the mission trip. And I'm sure they thought they were protecting God. But here's just some insight in case you, you've forgotten your role because sometimes I forget mine. God doesn't need you or I to protect him. Did you know that? He didn't save you to be his security detail. For if you have the power to protect God, you might be God. God can handle everything himself. But he has called us in to his story. And we are to speak truth unapologetically. And we are to declare the doctrines of the faith without denying any of that. That's not protecting God, but that's walking faithfully. In verse 13, it says, When the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God, as proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Can I just say that agitation is not a spiritual gift? says, The brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving the command for Silas and Paul to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So the team is tracked down, they are chased, and they make that decision that seemed hard at the time, I'm sure, but providential at this moment. They split up, and Paul goes this way, and Silas and Timothy stay here, and eventually they meet back up again in Athens, and the story continues on, and the mission would go on. Why? Because the mission must go on, and it does today. The people of uh, Berea received, they re- researched, and they responded, and that's how those who are believers here did it as well. Your research may not have been 
as deep as those in Berea, but let me tell you, if just someone told you that you can know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you had to do some kind of mental research to determine if you're going to believe that which was just told to you. Because eloquence of speech is never going to be enough. See, we all needed that rescue. I had the um, privilege of preaching a funeral yesterday. I'm doing way too many of those lately. I just want you to know that. But it is an honor when it's a brother or sister in Christ. And this brother, um, a faithful member here for a long time, wasn't able to attend for the last few years due to health, he and his wife. But he actually worked here when I first came here. He worked in our maintenance staff. But I'm not going to get into all that I share, but there was something that I, either if I knew it, I had forgotten it, but I didn't know the intricacies of his story. What I found out in meeting with his wife and preparing the, the funeral is that he was born in 1949 in Frankfurt, Germany. He was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1949. Some of you are doing the math and the history right now, and you're going, wow, that's an interesting time to be in Germany. It's post-World War II, difficult times. We have the Allies. There's the rebuilding of Europe that's taking place. He, as a five-year-old at the time, so that's what, 1954, was living in an orphanage. Blonde hair, hazel-eyed, German-speaking five-year-old. When his mother and father, who were active-duty U.S. Navy, who did not have children of their own, were stationed there and serving, one as a radio operator and one as a mechanic, when his mother and Father made those decisions that since we can't have children of our own biologically, God still is going to bless us with children, so let's wait and see how this works out. It is said that she saw this young boy, this five-year-old, who was um, in that orphanage, in that orphanage, and the first time she saw him, she said, that's my boy. And at that moment, she, and, and I'm looking up just one thing in these notes, she and her husband adopted him and brought him into their family. He didn't speak English. He eventually did. He was born in a difficult time in a different, difficult place, but uh, he was so blessed to be adopted into a family that loved the Lord and brought him to church and eventually moved back here to Orange Park. He never got back to Germany. He wanted to. He never had that opportunity. But when they adopted him, his, his name at, at first, let me see, I have it written here, was Karl Heinz Heinrich. Now, that's a German name. Karl Heinz Heinrich was adopted. And when he was adopted, his parents said, uh, you are our son. And one of the first things they did after doing all the legal things that were necessary and the ramifications that came with that and documents and money and all of this, they said, you're now going to be Robert Charles. They changed his name, and they gave him their last name, as is the case often. But here's the joy of, of this, <laughs> the joy found in a funeral. I was able to share that my brother was adopted twice. He was adopted in 1954 by the Phipps family who renamed him and brought them into their home and gave him an identity. And then he was adopted as a young boy in Orange Park by our Heavenly Father. When he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and God did the very same thing, gave him a new name. No longer creation of mine, but child of mine. No longer just a human being, but my son. 
And that's why the funeral yesterday could be one where we cry and we grieve and we laugh and we celebrate because we know that that adoption is irrevocable. It's not going to end, and he is home with our Heavenly Father even now, and we can call him brother. But here's something else to consider. As a five-year-old German boy in an orphanage in Frankfurt somewhere, he did absolutely nothing to earn his adoption. He wasn't good enough to be adopted. He didn't say the right things. If he had, his parents couldn't have understood it. He didn't do any work to get into that family. But because of the love of a mother and a father to a child that they had yet to know very well but just met, he was redeemed, ransomed, adopted, and given a name. Back when this church was located over there on the other side of 17, close to Moose Haven and Club Continental, this young boy went to the church, and at some point during that journey as a child, as a young man going to church regularly, he discovered that his heavenly Father, the God we preach about, the one we talk about, the one who has declared his living word in Christ himself as the way and the truth and the life, now known as Bob, not Carl, he realized that he didn't deserve heaven. He couldn't work his way to it, couldn't do more good deeds than bad, didn't speak enough of the right language, but all because of God's great love of redemption and the way he too could be adopted into God's family. All he had to do was receive the word, understand it to be true, and respond, just like you, just like every one of us. And I am thankful that the gospel is as relevant today as it was when it was put pen to paper, and that the gospel fully is Christ, not just a book. If you are a Christian, you're listening online, you're in the room, Christians, let me encourage you to be like Paul in this regard, recognizing not everyone wants to hear your voice, nor does everyone want to hear what you have to say, but don't let that shut you up. And don't be nice about it because nice is not what God has called us to be, but be kind because that's much different than nice. Nice is surface level. Kind is caring. And in your kindness, lovingly share the truth to those that need to hear it. And be bold about it. Don't be a jerk about it, but be clear. And realize some will respond, many will not. But we're graded not on the response, but on the obedience. Now, to all the pre-Christians in the room and the pre-Christians who are watching online, I have faith that God is calling you to himself, and I call you a pre-Christian because today you could become a child of God. You can. If you would just receive. Research it in your mind and heart and respond today. Let me pray for you. Father, as your church, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask that what we saw happen in Berea will happen here, that some who receive will respond and they will know you. And the Christians who, like me, are challenged and sometimes get so caught up in the minutia of everyday life because we have our get-into-heaven card already punched, we forget we're supposed to be telling others the truth as well. Father, give us a burden for others like Paul had a burden for the Jews, like you have a burden for humanity. Help us to be bold in our faith and to share it lovingly and kindly. And trusting you to do all the work 
that really gets people into heaven and into relationship. Help us to just be obedient. And for the non-believers, the, the ones trusting in everything but you, the overwhelmed and the confused and the questioning, give them clarity today, I pray. And may they do what I did many years ago and what Bob did that I referenced earlier. May they surrender their lives to you and be born again, repenting of their sin, confessing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, the one who died, was buried, and rose again. Same message that Paul preached, same message today. Give them the courage to respond and say yes to you. Thank you.